Okay, well, we're back. This is Joe McHugh with Liberty Strikes Back, independent candidate for President of the United States, Marine Corps veteran, finance entrepreneur with a background in finance and economics. And today we're going to talk about, I'm going to share my story. And I feel like it's a, now's a good time to share that, share that story and the reason why I'm involved in politics and, and why I've made some of the decisions I've, I've made in my life. Um, it's good to share this following the initial episode because the initial episode is my raison d'etre. It's my reason for being. It's, 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 it's what got me um, on the path that I'm on right now. And so when I was a kid, I grew up, I was born in Detroit, what is now called uh, East Point. I was born in, it was East Detroit at the time. And then my parents moved to Sterling Heights, which is a suburb of Detroit. And I grew up Grew up there in Sterling Heights, and as a youth, going into you know elementary, junior high, high school, um, I was a middle-class suburban white kid, and I watched the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s unfold every night on the evening news, as opposed to watching it unfold on my street and in my family. And what I saw every evening was the same story every single day. It was one black family after another destroyed as a result of the crack epidemic. And typically the story went something like this. There was, uh, you know, there was a, you know, families predominantly black in Detroit in the 80s and 90s. We're talking like 80, no, I'm sorry, like 98% black at one point after the white flight, uh, where all the white families left after the riots of, of 68 and uh, took the tax base with them in large degree. And, um, well, the, the city just kind of went downhill uh, over the next number of, of, of decades. And the, the General Motors dismantled the public transit system. Uh, the big box stores pick up and left the city. Uh, and as a result, you had a group of people who lived in the city, had no means or, or few means to, to get a job unless you, were, unless you were educated, but the schools were failing at that time too. They were going bankrupt. And, and the politicians, as a matter of fact, were stealing, were stealing from the schools. And that, that continued all the way up into the 2000s. And that's the reason why Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick is in prison today for stealing tens of millions of dollars from the school system. But this was, this was rampant, uh, and it went on for, 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 for decades. And so you have, you have families that, that live in the city, that, have, that, have, uh, that, that, go, that attend schools that were failing, in, in schools with, with pork and, and unsuitable conditions for, for learning and, and educating. Uh, then you know you had the, the pipeline directly from school to the streets, and then ultimately to prison, and then from prison to homelessness, and then unemployment and back to prison. And so that's that's you know today we have one in three black men will still go to prison, uh, and that is what we were seeing happen in the 80s and 90s in Detroit. And as a result of black men being oppressed in that way, black women. We're, we're left to fend for the children. And you have essentially the destruction of the family, the family unit, because 
when when um, when the when the male when you know when the husband or the the boyfriend or the you know the male in the family the father and the family is taken away for years at a time to go to prison the the you know the women will do they'll do what they need to do and you know a lot of times that state that state assistance and then of course in the 90s you had the crackdown on on you know the tough on crime bills in the 90s the you know the three strikes and you're out and you know, we know what that happened. That increased the the amount of people that ended up going to prison as a result of, of drugs. And it's exactly the opposite of what we want to do. So I asked my parents, you know, why is this happening? Why why are our families being destroyed like this? And the answer that I got as a youth, probably in my early teens, was that we don't know, it's just the way it is. But to me, to me, that was not an acceptable answer, one. And two, I knew enough at the time to know that if this was happening, it's because somebody was making money off of it and therefore somebody wanted it to happen. I didn't at the time understand the extent to which this went, the, you know, the, the, the degree of, or the depth of, um, of corruption in America. I didn't, I didn't understand that or I didn't understand what I was getting myself into. But at that moment I decided, well, this, this seems to me like, like a worthy cause worth a cause worth committing my life to. And because that, that was, that was injustice and it was playing out every single day to people who simply just look different than middle-class white America and because of the color of their skin and were stuck in a system of entrapment and nobody was doing anything about it. And that, like today, with the protests that are going on today and the destruction that comes with it and the way that the president the government has responded, it's both infuriating and heartbreaking at the same time. And, um, and I wasn't even directly participating. It's just that I, I could empathize. I could feel the pain. And I still feel the pain. But that's the reason why I got involved. Uh, that's the reason why, uh, that's what originally motivated me to action. And so when I, I went to Michigan State, I studied international relations and political economy. Um, I wanted to understand how politics, economics, and finance uh, work together on the international and global scale. I figured that the solution was somewhere at the cross-section of money, economics, and politics and government. And so I decided to learn about power politics with international relations. And Mao Zedong said all power comes from the barrel of the gun. And to a large extent, he's right, but not completely, because the pen can be mightier than the sword. And a peaceful protest can be, can be far more compelling as well. And and then the second is the, the political economics aspect. And so following my time at Michigan State, 
in which I, I studied those two and earned a double, double major. I, my first job out of school, my first real job out of school was at, at UBS, real job meaning, you know, job in which my parents were going to yell at me because, again, I was, I was privileged and my parents paid for my college. Um, but my first, my first two jobs actually coming out of school, I went to, I went to Seattle uh, because I had always wanted to go out west. Seattle was a beautiful city to me. I felt like if there was another town I could see myself living in, it would be... Seattle because the Seahawks at the time, pre-Russell Wilson, were as bad as my Detroit Lions, and I felt like I would feel right at home. So, so Seattle was where I decided to go, and I went to work for the Washington Public Interest Research Group, the Washburgs, a Nader-founded organization, Ralph Nader, and went knocking on doors to protect the whales for privacy rights and for gay rights, and I raised money and learned how to sell. Um, by, by talking about abstract concepts of politics and asking for money at the door to, to support the cause. Um, that's where I learned how to manage a field campaign. And then I, I went back to Michigan and then got involved in the Oakland County Republican Campaign Committee. And even though I voted for Gore, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't vote for Bush because Bush was lying about not wanting to take us to war. And... But I needed a job, and ironically, you know, Gordon, well, they didn't want me. They didn't want to, they didn't need my help, they said. And, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Bill Clinton felt the same way when they told him that, that they didn't need his help, and as a result, they lost Arkansas. Would have won Arkansas, he would have won the election. Anyway, um, so I ran that, I ran that in, in a, the, the Oakland County Republican Campaign Committee, and I learned the, the campaign for the Bush campaign, and I learned how to run a, a, an office campaign. So I understood how to run a field campaign, an office campaign. I understood the tactics at that point of running a campaign. I didn't understand the strategy so much, but I did understand at that point that I needed a job uh, to position myself in the public if I were going to get involved. And at this point, I believed that you know, politics. It was, I was going to get involved in, in politics and through policy, that was going to the way I was going to, going to be the way that I would, I would bring about change. And so I took a job at, at UBS as a financial advisor. And I, I had received an offer from them a year earlier. They didn't give me the max pay for new, for new entries. And so I walked, I went out and did the, the political stuff, came back a year later. They gave me the, the max offer, which you know, for for a new for a new uh, a new guy, a new financial advisor in the in 2001 or 2000 rather, 36,000 a year. I think it's the same thing that they pay you today, and you have that salary for about a year, and you have to replace it with commissions, and eventually you're commission only. Anyway, I had that job for for a year, and I I ultimately resigned in June the following year. In 2002, so from June of 01 to 02, I, I resigned to run for state representative full-time. And I ran in Sterling Heights, where I grew up. I ran on the Democratic ticket, even though I grew up in a Republican household, and I really didn't understand how to run as a Democrat. Um, but my, one of my best friends, his, his father took me under his wing. Um, military veteran, served in Vietnam, union leader, Wonderful, wonderful human being. Took me under his wing. He's like a second father to me. Was he's, he's now passed, um, died of cancer. But um, 
He's a, he took me under his wing. He taught me, taught me a bit about what it means to be a Democrat. And, um, and, and I, I ran the, the best campaign I could. We recruited 300 some odd volunteers. I, you know, we raised 15,000 bucks. I personally knocked in over 13,000 doors in a six month period. I recruited the, the, you know, the, the team of volunteers to, to lit drop another 17,000 doors. Uh, we ran on a common sense, fresh ideas, Joe McHugh platform. Uh, I was a 23 year old candidate challenging a 28 year old or 28 year incumbent for president or for, uh, for state representative at that point. And um, we ultimately lost, but we outperformed every other Democrat in the district except for the, uh, the, the candidate for governor, uh, Jennifer Granholm at that time. And um, so that was my first foray into politics. And then I worked a number of other jobs in finance and uh, learned, learned about retail finance in particular, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, home mortgages, insurance, pretty much everything from a household finance standpoint. Did eventually move to D.C. the following year in 2003. My buddy found me a job uh, working with him. He's a college college roommate of mine, so we went down to D.C., had a lot of fun down there, made some money. Uh, left that job after a year where they didn't, wouldn't give me a lateral promotion. I ended up being the top salesperson in, in the company after nine months. Um, and, uh, but they wouldn't give me a lateral move to marketing where I could out, end up working with the marketing team to improve the, everything. So, so I left. Um, I ended up working on a company called Campaign Assistant. I was going to help, uh, help companies or other ca- political candidates learn how to raise money online. I wrote a concept called web raising. Uh, this was at the time that Howard Dean was running for office. And um, he was the, you know, the first kind of pioneer for internet fundraising. Uh, ultimately, that, that venture did not, that not work out because I was a state-level kind of person. I didn't have contacts at the national level, and I really didn't know how to go about doing that at that point. I ended up going back to work after about a year and a half of trying to make it work on my own, and I had offers to go to work with other companies and help innovate as an entrepreneur within a company, uh, but I knew that I was going to need to serve in the Marine Corps before before I, I committed to something because if I were going to be the leader that I wanted to be, then I would have to join the best leadership organization our nation had to offer, and that was the Marine Corps. Before I did that, I went and signed up to, uh, for a subprime loan uh, position in which I helped people save, in some cases, thousands of dollars on their mortgage by consolidating their mortgages. Um, yeah, there, I also helped put an end to a practice in which we were offering mortgages up to 125% of the value of the home with, an un- with a first mortgage that was adjustable, which pretty much guaranteed that anybody who had an adjustable first mortgage with a second mortgage that went above the value, it was ensured that they were going to go uh, be foreclosed. So when I saw that with my first loan that I did, I, I went and reported that, and they changed the policy. Um, and then I worked there for another year or so, Ultimately, that company shut their doors. I went to work for, uh, I went, I, I started training for the Marine Corps. And eventually, you know, the first time through, I was, I was not in good enough shape. I ended up getting, I went to OCS with, and came home three weeks later with stress fractures in both legs. Um, and 
I went back down a year later after after six months of not training and thinking, well, what else was I going to do with my life and couldn't come up with any good answer. I was either going to be a Marine or I was going to be basically homeless and just give up on life. And so that ladder wasn't acceptable, so I committed to becoming a Marine. I trained. I worked with my brother and, and Vince, the, the buddy that I met before, or that I mentioned earlier. And they, they helped train me so that I was going to be in better shape going down. I knew that if I was going to get through officer candidate school at my advanced age of 30 years old, training against candidates that were 22, and there's a big difference, by the way, between when you're 30 and when you're 22. When you're 30, working on just a few hours of rest a night and lots of activity throughout the day, your body tends to break down over time, whereas when you're 22, your body will recover. And I knew that if I were going to make it through, that I would need to go down and be one of the top conditioned athletes in the platoon of 62 in order to finish somewhere in the middle halfway through because what happens is the Marine Corps washes out 50% of the platoon in order to you know, get the few, the proud, the Marines, the best of the best. And that's what happened. So I ended up going down there, and I, I ran the fastest three-mile time in the entry-level uh, entry uh, physical fitness test. I was number two out of 62 on the, entry, on the initial PFT. And after 10 weeks, I, I managed to survive, and I, I got through, and I finished, I think it was either 15 or 16 out of 31. It was right there in the middle, which was exactly what the plan was. So that worked out well. I ended up deploying to Asia and Africa as a part of um, two on board two Navy vessels, two activated reserve deployments. In between the two deployments, I, I served active duty uh, with my infantry battalion, the Reserve Infantry Battalion, and in, in at Selfridge, Michigan. Uh, I um, I presented the flag to next of uh, next of kin to to fallen Mar families of fallen Marines. Uh, that was some of the most difficult duty I've ever had to do. Um, I'll never forget the uh, the first the first the first funeral I did was in Detroit and he, he was he was a corporal, a black corporal and um, his family his family was in attendance it was a big it was a big family. And I presented the flag and to the mother, and the women next to her, they just kind of, uh, they burst out in tears and, and uh, I want the flag, I want my brother. I want my son. <clears throat> and that was my first duty as a, as a Marine Corps officer. And I think that every, every certainly the Commander-in-Chief, without question, and presumably every elected official ought to serve at the national level, every, every elected official ought to serve in uniform 
whether in the military or as policemen, whatever, but we ought, they ought to serve their nation. In order to understand what it is to serve and the sacrifice that, that not just the men and women in uniform make, but also the families of the people who sign up to serve and the sacrifices that they make in order to support our men and women in uniform. We're all in this together. And when we pass, our family is still there to grieve. And when it happens with such frequency and such injustice that's happening today across America and has been happening for so many years, and then when you layer in the idea that we might not be fighting for liberty and instead we're fighting for oil and opium, that calls into question what exactly are we fighting for? My second deployment, I went to Asia and Africa. Or rather, I went to Asia on my first deployment, I went to Africa on my second deployment. And our mission was to train partner African military forces in military combat, into, in military infantry tactics, riot tactics, riot control tactics, which is ironic as well as combat lifesaver tactics. And we were on board a Navy vessel, and it was a kind of a multi-service venture. There were Air Force and Army personnel as well as Navy personnel, and civilians as well, presumably out of uniform, undercover intel as well. And it was, a, it was an entertainment vessel. And so there were, you know, we, had, we went from port to port, and. The, the high-ranking officials from the various governments would come on board ship and the Navy personnel would entertain and people would drink on board the ship, etc. My Marines were not, we were not uh, allowed to drink. That was my specific, I was given an order, we're not drinking, roger that, sir, uh, we won't be drinking. I was not told why, um, but I'm not always supposed to be told why. It helps, it helps to understand why. But as a commander, it's not, you don't always need to do that. And it's my responsibility as an officer to make sure that the orders that I'm given are enforced. At a certain point, a little, little over halfway through our trip, I believe, my gunnery sergeant authorized alcohol uh, for one of the Marines. The junior ranking Marine was drinking wine, they, and uh, presumably they wanted to see how I was going to react to it. So I wrote up the gunnery sergeant. He's supposed to be my senior enlisted advisor, and here is my senior enlisted advisor actively undermining the, 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 the orders of the unit. So I wrote him up, but I made a, I made a mistake and I didn't, turn, I didn't send the order up the chain. And that's a violation of one of the most basic orders as officers. Report every order, every violation of order that we're instructed to enforce. So I broke that, and that was, that was my fault. 
and no one is responsible except for me on that. I learned a valuable lesson there, not to make a comfort-based decision, because as a result of that, I ended up going along with with the gunnery sergeant. You know, we were we're away from the flagpole. Everyone else is drinking. Let's relax. You know, loosen your loosen your your, your you know your upper button a little bit. Just and um, but there was a reason. There's always a reason why orders are given. And this particular order, I've, I learned the hard way, unfortunately, that one of my Marines was a suicidal alcoholic. And when we authorized alcohol, at one of the, at one of the training evolutions, the following, the following a night in which the Marines were just kind of hanging out, he was unfit for duty. He was late to show up. I ordered a duty fitness assessment and found that he was unfit for duty. Later learned that he had mixed sleeping pills and alcohol and effectively tried to kill himself on my watch and it would have been my, my loss. So I did immediately report that. And I reported up the chain and said, sir, I made a mistake. This is what happened. And, you know, balls in your court, but... It's shut down, drinking is shut down, but I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to risk losing a Marine. And so I, I reported it. They, they took uh, the, gunnery, the gunnery sergeant and myself off the ship. Uh, I, was, I was distraught because I almost lost a Marine for some very, very simple order that I failed to, to follow, and I, I felt horrible about it. And... I, uh, you know, this is, I compounded a bad decision with another bad decision. If you feel bad, sometimes you make more bad decisions. And that's, that's where we're at in America today is that we're so focused on law and order as opposed to addressing the underlying issues that are contributing to the discontent in America and the injustices in America. And, you know, the call from the president is increased investment into law and order as opposed to increased investment in the people, which would be the right approach. Um, I, I wanted to take myself out of uniform and I wasn't about to wait um, for that to happen. So I, I went into a top secret room, I turned on my phone after I deleted everything on the profile and I, that way I would have no access to anything that was sensitive whatsoever. And I, but I knew that just turning on the phone would be enough to get me kicked out. So that's what I did. And I fully expected to be charged within, you know, within the Marine Corps as a, as a military officer, UCMJ, whatever the violation they want to throw at me, but that didn't happen. As a matter of fact, what happened was they processed me out of the Marine Corps, honorably administrative, separ- administrative separation on alcohol violation charges. I do have a code, a national security, like uh, they, they called it a national security uh, issue. And then what happened was for the next eight years, I dealt, I started dealing with unconstitutional governmental entrapment, surveillance, monitoring, black FBI vans driving by the house, uh, people trying to get and become my roommate, randomly talking about 9-11 being an inside job, and you know, the, Air, the investi- uh, direct, executive director for Air Force Investigations looking at my LinkedIn profile without changing their LinkedIn profile to private. So I knew that at that point I was under investigation. 
And I, I felt like the only thing I could do was to be as transparent as possible. I didn't have any information. I didn't steal anything. But they felt, they must have felt like I stole something. Well, I didn't steal anything. I didn't steal anything. I didn't view anything. No sense of information. I stuck to my, my mission and that's it. I didn't want the responsibility of seeing something that I wasn't supposed to see. And, um, and so I never was charged with a crime. Instead, the government tried to entrap me, catch me in, catch me breaking other forms of laws. Um, I started receiving phone calls from little girls saying, I'm scared, come save me. Uh, it was a recorded phone call, apparently, from the FBI. It happened twice. The first time it happened, I said, who are you? How'd you get my number? Don't call again. Because anyway, I figured it was a recorded call. I mean, that, that, doesn't, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. Um, second time, same response, and then I didn't get a, I didn't get that, that didn't happen again. Um, undercover roommates again, I had a couple of different undercover roommates that ended up blowing their cover. They moved out as soon as their cover was blown. Uh, just a, a variety of things. I ran for office again in 2014. They, you know, there were people that turned me against the only volunteer that was really on my side. It was, it was really something. And I document all of this in my book, Hijacking America, Liberty Strikes Back, at, uh, which you can find at hijackingamerica.com. I, um, I ended up uh, volunteering for Team Rubicon in uh, 20, I think it was 2012, right after I got out. Hurricane Sandy hit New York. I needed to do something to change the narrative uh, so that I would have a resume that I can talk about my most, most recent experience and it wouldn't be the fact that I was fired from the Marine Corps for an alcohol violation, effectively. Um, and so I went to New York. I volunteered for Hurricane Sandy. We helped dig people out from underneath the rubble. It was a he very healing experience, just getting out there, working with other veterans, recognizing that there were other veterans who were also hurting uh, feeling, hurting from PTSD, hurting from separation from brothers and sisters in arms, hurting from the lack of camaraderie in civilian life, the lack of community in civilian life, hurting for a lot of reasons and yearning for brotherhood and sisterhood and, and purpose. And Team Rubicon gave us that in that Hurricane Sandy mission. Um, we, uh, you know, the over I think it was Veterans Week, Veterans Day weekend. Um, there was a few thousand volunteers, and as a logistics officer in the Marine Corps, I I saw. Like it was, for me, I saw where the hiccups were in the process, and I said I went to the, the founders, the guys in charge of the operation, and say, hey, look, I know how to fix this. You know, all you have to do is say go fix it, and I'll fix it, and they they said go for it. So I, I immediately pulled out a gentleman from the volunteer line and said, okay, you're going to be in charge of training volunteers to run the, you know, the base uh, because we had all the veterans running, running base operations. And the veterans needed to be in the field running the volunteer teams. And so in order to do that, we had to train the volunteers to run the base ops so that we can free the veterans to run the field ops. So that's what we did. And as a result, we, we increased the throughput dramatically 
and put through a few thousand volunteers and one of the founders, I'm still very good friends with him today, and he wrote a, a cover letter for me, and that's the reason why I got into business school, because I was able to talk about that experience, not use any military references, and I told nobody about it, uh, the school that I applied to, which was Babson. Bef but before I applied to Babson, I, I applied to Columbia, which I had previously been accepted to the New York program. I wanted to do their executive MBA, but I wanted to do the... Um, London program. They said I was a better fit for New York. They encouraged me to apply again the next year. So when I reapplied, I was summarily just denied. Um, and that was probably because of the investigation that was still ongoing at that point. And it was also because I told some people that I suspected were undercover and monitoring and obstructing some of my activities in the, in the 2014 campaign for State House. And so I didn't tell anyone about my application to business school. I ended up going to business school after, after a, state, a run for state representative in which I sold liberty as a Democrat to focusing on gay rights in a very gay, gay uh, district in the South. And in the North, it was a very constitutional district, a very Republican district. And so I focused on liberty, 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 liberty in the form of a liberty for all, quality from a gay rights perspective, legalizing cannabis, and, and just a, a clean, green environment and respect for liberty and our rights as Americans. And that was the message. And I wanted to test that out within the Democratic Party. It worked out pretty well. I received a number of endorsements, including one from the Detroit Free Press, or Detroit News, I think it, it was at the time. And, um, but I didn't win. I didn't win that one either, um, which... I kind of expected. I mean, the, the gentleman who won had been campaigning for a year at that point, and he was from the district and I wasn't, so it's, it's kind of to be expected. In any case, I went to business school and I had a single concept in mind, and the concept was earth loans. The, the concept was to create loans and investments for a healthy planet. At this point, I had learned that, that the system was inherently corrupt that they were, that the federal, the feds were, they had no intention of respecting our constitution, that the Patriot Act had shredded our rights and had eliminated my right to due process. I never received a warrant. I was never charged with anything. And yet I was still, I was still monitored, surveilled and trapped and interfered with and obstructed with on a regular basis common phrase that I was that I would hear from people around me was quote you will never be allowed to gain any sort of influence end quote and I heard that all the time you will never be allowed to gain any sort of influence well to me that was unacceptable I was an American I had my rights my rights were being violated and I was going to keep on pushing I went to business school with the concept of creating earth loans uh, loans and investment for a healthy planet I was convinced that the Federal Reserve and the intelligence apparatus were in cahoots with the oil and banking industries, that we were sending our troops overseas for oil and opium, uh, that in 2001, I kind of forgot to mention this, but I was working at UBS. I was in the office when the planes hit the two Twin Towers. Uh, to me, I, based on my, my training and education at Michigan State and my understanding of terrorism at the time, that that um, terrorism is, is typically a function of government. Uh, 
in which they use violence against civilian populace for political ends, and that governments often do it against their own people to accomplish those objectives. So I immediately suspected our own people because New York City is most, one of the most heavily defended cities on the planet. There's no other way to explain how we could have gone through a Cold War and numerous hot wars and nobody ever attacked New York City. So, so I suspected that 9-11 that was an inside job the whole time. And, and so my objective was to, was to if, you, if you can't beat the, the oil industry as a politician, then potentially you could do it as an entrepreneur. Elon Musk had figured out, had figured out a way around the system. He, he got PayPal off the ground, he made his money. And then he said, ha ha, now I'm going to work on something that I really want to do, which is carbon-free electric vehicles. And the, gov- and, and the financial community stood against him for many, many years and sabotaged his efforts. And he just recently eventually pulled through on that. So my objective was to launch Earth Loans, loans and investments for a friendly planet. I focused on geothermal heating and cooling because it was a proven technology endorsed by the EPA since the early 70s. Simple technology for refrigeration technology and that it replaced oil, heating oil, in people's homes and buildings, which was the, next to coal, the worst type of polluting agent for heating in a market that was completely unaddressed because the, ter- the, the transportation sector had already been addressed, but from a fossil fuels perspective and, and, and climate change perspective, nothing had been done to address the usage of fossil fuel uh, for heating in homes. And New York State was an area in which there was a thriving geothermal market, heavy use of fuel oil and the finances were not set up for, for adoption. So in other words, 50% of every deal was done in cash because the banks were only offering a five-year term loan. And in order for people for it to make sense for a homeowner on a cash flow on a monthly basis, in other words, you want to make sure that your heating and cooling bill with geothermal is less expensive than your heating and cooling bill with, with, with oil and electricity on a monthly basis. The fact that they didn't offer loans long enough uh, in term meant that it was more expensive to, com- to switch. But if you offered a 20-year term loan instead of a five-year term loan, then you flip it and consumer preference now favors the carbon-free geothermal heating and cooling. And so having, with my experience in the markets and understanding consumer, understanding consumer choice and economics and then having experience of being a mortgage loan officer, I knew that we could put together a loan package that would gain some attraction in the marketplace. And the concept was simple enough. It was Lending Club plus Solar City. It, I mean, it's two publicly traded, well-known companies could not get much simpler. And yet my advisors would tell me, they would run me around in circles and say, I don't really understand it. Go back to the drawing board create new slides to help me better understand it. It was, they were basically just running me in circles. Once I finished business school and I left and I kept and I, I was not going to quit. I think their objective was to try and get me to go get a job, but I was not going to do this. I was not going to quit. This was where, you know, I knew that the world needed this and I was not going to do anything what, other than what I was supposed to do. 
I ended up going to Puerto Rico uh, because I had reached the point where every time I had an investor on the hook, they were trying to get me to launder money for them or do something illegal. So I just said, the hell with this. I'm going to trade, I'm going to trade the markets from Puerto Rico and live on the beach. Um, but before I did that, I wrote a couple of Bitcoin stories and I, I, I did some research into Bitcoin and learned that it was a big fraud, that somebody had hacked the blockchain in 2010 and, re and released 182 billion Bitcoin, which means that the 21 million currently floating is worth only 0.01% of the total float. So if it's like $10,000 Bitcoin, you're looking at, I think, what, 10 cents or a dollar for actual value. So that really upset me because I was really excited about cryptocurrency. And then I saw that and it ended up being a nine quadrillion dollar fraud. And considering that they had already taken away my future and refused to respect my rights, I was really, really pissed. So I wrote the articles, published it, it caught on. I found a, a, a publisher in, I think it was Norway, who made it front page news in, their, in uh, CryptoCoinsNews.com. And it, it, there's, you know, the only evidence is that I ever got it out there because they erase everything that I've done online. They've erased the history of Earth Loans, my website, that everything is gone. If you do a search for dirty, Bitcoin's dirty secret, or dark secret rather, you'll see that it's on the, it's on the web and that other people created a, you know, videos and articles about it and it, it just got out there and spread. And so that's the proof that, that it was there. Um, but, uh, you know, this government that exists today, this government has no intention of, of respecting your rights. The FISA courts that were established in 78 were supposed to be established to monitor foreign intelligence. Uh, and uh, as a result of a slippery slope to tyranny, they now monitor all Americans, as we learned from Edward Snowden's disclosure. In 87, Ronald Reagan ended up repealing the Fairness Doctrine, birthing fake news. Ironically, Reagan is also the president that said that you have to trust and verify, and by repealing the Fairness Doctrine, we eliminated our ability to verify. I think he, you know, in a lot of cases, he was a good president. Depending on your perspective, a lot of people say he was not a good president. Uh, I think that I can understand both sides of that equation. What, what I can say with, with a little bit of certainty here is that where actors do not necessarily understand, because Ronald Reagan, like our current president, was an actor before he got into politics, it's possible he didn't understand the ramifications of what he was doing from a constitutional standpoint. In 81, he was briefed by the CIA that by William Casey, Director William Casey, our objective is to, our, we'll know that our disinformation campaign is complete when everything the American public knows is false. And today, we're surrounded by fake news. Everything that we see and hear on the internet and on television is owned by six media corporations. All the traffic that flows through to our phones and our TV and our computers flows through the backbone of three telecom companies. It's very easy to control what happens and what we see on TV and online and on the radio. And that's the reason why you have to verify everything for yourself in person. In any case, 
it's it's because of my experience dealing with the violation of my own personal rights as Americans, even though I served my country as a Marine Corps officer, that I um, have found myself, and also because of what I grew up. Again, I, I got involved in this because of what I saw and the injustices that I saw in Detroit every night on the evening news. And that led me to become a you know, a finance professional and a Marine Corps officer. And through a little bit of serendipity, I found myself on the other side of the law, or at least the target of the law. And I learned a little bit about the Constitution. And, and the reason why Thomas Jefferson said that, that uh, you know, we should follow the, the will, of the, we should follow the, uh, some of the extent of uh, follow the will of the law, unless it violates the rights of the people, in which case uh, the law is always the tyrant's will. And that's where we find ourselves today. So that's kind of, that's my background. Um, And when I left Puerto Rico in 2019, the beginning of 2019, I did so after a couple of months of, I mean, my entire year down in Puerto Rico, I felt like I was in the hives the beehive of of American intelligence. And just one person after another, it seemed like they were on one side or another. I I didn't really, you know, I could, it was tough to tell. But I had people trying to get me to sign a Chinese and Mexican non-disclosure agreement to see if where my loyalties lie. Um, Again, trying to take illegal money I was told that I, I would never be allowed to do anything without influential people on the island of Puerto Rico. My response was, if they're influential, it's probably because they're corrupt and they can go to hell. Uh, that I wanted to do this the right way and I wasn't about to break the law in order to get it off the ground. Uh, there are a number of things, and I, I mentioned them in my articles, which you can find on, on Medium. But uh, I went to Buffalo, New York. I was invited to participate in an incubator in the beginning, the first quarter of uh, 2019, second quarter, Q1, Q2 of 2019. And the contract that I received was one in which if I had executed the contract and stuck with it, that I would lose, potentially lose, 100% of my equity over the next 15 years, it was another entrapment. The contract was missing a non-dilution clause or a mandatory dilution clause. And that's the thing. These contracts, the way they're written, contracts that violate the rights of people should be ruled unconstitutional and rendered null and void in the court of law, and they are not in today's courts. And this particular contract was nothing more than entrapment that meant to, if I wanted to maintain my wealth and my company, then I would have to follow their rules. But again, being a student of entrapment as well as finance at this point, I knew enough to know that I was not going to work for free and that I would rather produce nothing than give them something that I produced. And so I basically, I worked for, I signed the contract, I worked for half the, half the program to demonstrate my 
my ability as an entrepreneur. And then I found a way out uh, by defaulting on the on the uh, on the um, the fee. Uh, you know, there was a eight hundred dollar fee. There, they gave me a payment plan. Uh, I didn't have any means of making any money at that point, and they had portfolio companies that needed people to work, and I had the need, the need to work. And yet, when I applied for jobs, they didn't give it to me. So they had no intention of helping me. And I had no intention of helping them. So I, I defaulted and found my way out of the contract. They kicked me out of the program as a result of that, thinking that I was going to try and beg my way back in. But instead, I gave them my list of demands to come back in, which included that they include a mandatory dilution clause. They went silent, didn't do that, invited me to apply for another program in Buffalo. Um, I, I opted not to do it because to me it seemed like they were probably working together. And, um, you know, Burmy once, shame on you, but Burmy twice, shame on me. And twice burned, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to trust them again. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't. I didn't end up following through with them on Earth Loans, which was heartbreaking because that's, you know, I really wanted that company. Instead, I ended up pivoting and writing the book. And then I ended up uh, getting involved and after I finished, I'm still in the process of completing the book. And I ended up going in October, I hit the road. October of 2019, I hit the road and I went all over, drove all over the country. Decided, I was deciding if I was going to run as a Democrat or as a as an independent, I ended up running as an independent. I got enough signatures in Utah to get on the ballot. I did the same thing, or I ended up paying the filing fee, raised some money, got on the ballot in Colorado for the filing fee. And now I'm in Tennessee collecting signatures here. And again, you know, I wanted to share with you a little bit about my background because it's all about money. It has always been about money and it's always going to be about money. And we are actively entrapped by the Federal Reserve, by our two-party system, by our intelligence apparatus and the banks that own everything and the oil companies that are complicit and the military-industrial complex that, that Kennedy and Truman and Eisenhower warned us against. It's an entrapment. And until we regain control of our money by turning the Federal Reserve Bank into a credit union so that every American has an equal ownership stake in our economy until the American people are represented in our monetary system, earn a citizen's dividend from it, and have a vote in the management of it. Until that happens, we will not have control over our own system of government. And so that is, that is what I'm doing. That is my backstory. I'm running for President of the United States to restore liberty in America for all Americans. I believe that every American deserves clean air, fresh water, and healthy food instead of air that makes us sick, that gives us asthma, water that's full of lead and PFAS and causes developmental disabilities, and food that makes us fat and sick. Every American deserves money that retains value over time. Every American deserves to have our constitutional rights upheld and respected 
for every American, regardless of your race, color, creed, gender, preference, or background otherwise. And the bottom line is right now, the men and women in uniform are fighting for oil and opium instead of for liberty. And, and that's just not acceptable. America is about liberty. America is about living up to our ideals, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's my background. And that's, uh, that's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I know it's a little bit unorthodox. And as a result of everything that's going on, I don't have a lot of money, don't really have a, a way to make a lot of money. I've, one of the talents that I have is to trade online, uh, trading Forex or trading the markets. And what should have taken a couple of days to get online and up and running is dragging out for months. That's, that's how this government works. I mean, they, they, they obstruct you in ways that are difficult to prove that it's obstruction. It appears as though it's just technical, a technicality, just a, a technical interruption or intrusion or technical difficulty or user error, whatever the case may be. And everyone in America will tell you that too. And I believe that's partially because everyone in America is stuck behind a unconstitutional State Department NDA that requires every American who signs it to support American policy instead of the Constitution. And when the, you pledge to support American policy, if the policy happens to be unconstitutional and evil and immoral, that contract says that you still have to support it. And uh, even though that contract should be rendered null and void as unconstitutional. But that's what I'm doing. That's, that's why I'm involved, and that's the reason why I'm fighting the fight. That's the reason why, to me, black lives matter, all lives matter, and that we all need to be in this together. I do not condone the violence. I think it's kind of productive to what we're trying to accomplish. I don't believe that the people that are involved in the Black Lives Matter movement are the ones driving the violence. I believe that those are probably Trump supporters because he's the one that benefits from that through the creation and the extension of the security state. America. Supposed to be the land of the free, home of the brave. Supposed to be uh, a nation of mutual respect for the opinions of mankind. A nation in which we have certain unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in which all people are created equally and endowed with those rights equally. The Constitution says that we should be seeking to create a more perfect union. And today, if you're listening to this and you're still with me, I believe that you agree that we have gone the wrong direction and we are a long ways away from creating a more perfect union. But the first thing is to recognize the problem. And I believe that the problem here is we are not all treated equally. That some people, if you're especially if you're black or brown, you know that this has been going on since the founding of our country. And that is unacceptable. 
but nothing has happened up until recently because now white people also feel it. So we need to be together. Everyone needs to stand together and we need to stand for America, stand for equal rights for all. If this is something you want to get involved in, I urge you to go to libertystrikesback.com. Schedule a time to chat. Love to chat with you. You need 275 signatures to get on the ballot as an independent here in Tennessee. There are ways that you can start collecting signatures to get on the ballot in other parts of the country as well. Love your feedback. Feel free to let me know. Good, bad, indifferent. And uh, I will share shorter stories with you on a fairly regular basis moving forward. Thanks for listening. God bless you. God bless America. And may liberty strike back for all of us.